All right, I, um, I mentioned um, a few types of beehives. I mentioned Dadan style. I mentioned the horizontal hive. Um, horizontal hives are not common here in the USA, but some countries they are. Like where I come from in the Ukraine and in um, old Soviet Union republics, it's a very common hive. It's like a hive that is, instead of being vertical, it's like on the side, horizontally expanding like this. Now, another type of a hive that um, is very, um, very good idea today, it's called, um, let me shut this so we don't interfere. Oops, sorry. With those folks. Uh, it's called a top bar hive. It's a hive where you actually do not introduce any foundation at all. Um, most of the foundation that you buy from commercially producing factories, they use used wax that comes from all kinds of different farms in order to coat their plastic foundation. Sometimes foundation could be just pure wax. Um, and bees normally like the pure wax foundation better. However, the drawback of foundation frame beekeeping is that the foundation has chemicals, pesticides, maybe even insecticides from somebody else's farm. And if you want the purest most organic, cleanest type of uh, uh, beekeeping in your home and the purest honey and most natural form, you may want to try a top bar hive. It's a hive where you don't put frames, you just put a top bar with tiny little strip of foundation on the very top so the bees could attach their new comb that they built to it. And that way, they just build wax from nectar they just collected. So that nectar has least contamination possible because it hasn't been processed through factories through all kinds of additives so they use nectar produce wax so it's the most natural cleanest way of having your own wax and the nectar will be stored in a very uh, very natural manner that hasn't been touched by technology or machinery or chemicals it hasn't been processed at all so it's most natural clean way of having good healthy honey so top bar hive is something that some of you tried. Somebody, probably you mentioned the top bar hive you tried. It's a good way to do, especially if you're doing it for hobby, for fun, or for pollination of your own garden. This is great. It's easy to do too. Um, it's, you know, you don't have to lift heavy boxes full of honey, you know. You don't have to, you just open the top of the hive. It normally has covers, like board covers. Then take a bar, and it has a piece of comb attached. Nothing else on the bottom. And then you can cut out that piece of comb and use it as comb honey. You can, you can just eat it with wax. Wax is not harmful for you anyway. Besides, wax ha is coated with propolis. And propolis is very good antifungal, antibacterial, antiviral property too. So there was a question right there. Uh, then, so the question is what type of a hive is that? It's called top bar hive it, it's a it's probably the most natural closest to nat natural way the bees would do it basically you're introducing fewer contemporary technology and chemicals into the life of your colony and to your own life because you'll be eating that comb so that's that's probably the purest way um, so let's keep going and um, we'll talk about some of the um, organic ways natural ways of dealing with pests and disease. Yes. 
What about that new type of hive that's self-draining? Yes, self-drain. Yeah, we let's touch on that hive and then we'll switch because we talked about starting hives and equipment last period. Let's talk about that. Um, another type of a hive. It, actually, the hive is the same with minor changes. It's um, the question is the hive that is self-draining hive. About a year ago, um, uh, about a year ago, maybe maybe two years ago, a year and a half, there was an inventor in. Um, down under, from down under, that is they say, from the other side of the world, uh, from Australia, who came up with this new design of a comb. You see how this comb is? Uh, there was a foundation in the middle, and there's two sides to the comb, right? Cells on both sides of the comb, right? You can you know, store honey on this side and this side of the comb, and then they share this common wall between them, right? Now, this fellow um, from Australia, thought a bit and said, hey, it's kind of a messy process to go in a colony, take out the, the, take out the frames, and then shake off the bees, and get stung maybe in the process, and then there's always a few bees left, so you end up killing those bees as you carry them into your honey house to extract. And then, you know, it's a lengthy process, messy, sticky business. If any of your husbands extracted honey in your kitchen, ladies, you probably were not very happy with that. Uh, because normally kitchen becomes sticky for days as you walk on the floor, you know, because honey is dripping everywhere, pieces of wax are stuck to your floor, and it, it's pretty messy. So this fellow says, how about we eliminate all that? And so he came up with new design for the frame. So this frame, just as you see on this picture, he has a mechanism devised that is attached to all the frames in the hive that contain honey, and a lever with the linkage to each frame where at the end of the season, if, if you want to employ this type of a hive, it's very expensive equipment to buy. How much? $600. There we go. You can buy this the set of frames for this hive, 600 bucks. And uh, pretty expensive for me. <laughs> Most people probably pretty expensive too. So if you bought it, the idea is, and I never, tr I never tried, I read about it, I watched the demonstrations, but never tried that at the end of the season, when the whole frame has been filled with honey, and that's very important if you are going with that type of a hive. If you're going with, with this flow hive, it's very important to wait until the end of the season when all the honey has been sealed or kept. Because the honey starts with being uh, very thin nectar, right? What, what do the bees bring from the flowers? Very thin nectar. It's about 40 to 60% sugar, that's all. The rest is water. So if they brought this nectar in, of course it depends on the weather. If you are in Arizona, then your nectar is a little thicker, you know, has less water and more sugar. If you live in Louisiana or Florida, your nectar is thinner because it's so humid. So the nectar comes in a hive. The bees put it in a cell somewhere here and they slowly evaporate the water out of, by fanning their wings, by heating up the temperature of the colony, evaporate excess water, the nectar becomes thicker, the concentration of sugar rises, the concentration of water drops. So when that happens, the bees transfer it a little higher in a cell, next level and next level and next level. So guess what? The ripest honey, and the honey is considered ripe by BFDA, when the honey reaches the 20% humidity. When the content of water in the honey is about 20, it's considered ripe. 
Now, some honey in Arizona probably would be about 18% water. So that honey is a little gooey, a little almost like chewy. That's how it is. It's so, it's so dry. And if you continue raising the temperature and evaporating more water, that honey eventually will turn into what? Into hard candy. Chew. You will chew on that. You know? So, but the bee society considers honey ripe when its water content is about 18, 20%. So when that happens, they put it at the very top level of the cells. And when that happens, a group of bees will go and seal each cell or can each cell separately, individually, so it does not take any more moisture in. Because honey is very hygroscopic. It basically absorbs moisture from the air. So if the air is moist, the honey will become diluted with water. And if you allow that process to happen and the water content increases, then the honey will become fermented. So instead of honey, you will be eating mead. And mead is um, a word that designates alcoholic drink made out of honey. And in many Slavic languages, mead actually means honey. So you don't want mead, you want honey. Therefore, the bees do the job for you. They seal the ripe honey. Now, in the mid-season, in the summer, in June, not all the honey is ripe, okay? So there will be ripe honey in the top and not ripe honey in the bottom. So this honey is fully ready to be harvested. This honey is just 60% water, 40% uh, water. So it will not store, it will ferment. And if you have a flow high and you say, hey, I see some honey, let me drain it. So you, you know, crank your lever down. What happens to the frame, that design of a hive actually allows this portion of the comb and this portion of the comb to shift like this. No, shift slightly, just quarter inch. Each, which breaks the internal wall inside of the comb. And there's a pipe on the bottom collecting the flowing honey that flows from each cell down in the pipe. And then that pipe actually connects to the front of the hive, little spout where you put a jar and just pull the lever, put a jar, and the honey flows straight in your jar. You put a lid and that's the nature of that kind of a type of a hive. The honey flows out. Now, what happens if it's June, half of the frame is sealed honey, ripe, good consistency. The bottom portion of your frame is still raw honey. Um, raw is a bad word. Uh, still too liquid of a honey. It's nectar. What happens to the moisture content in your final product? Very high. What will happen to that honey, guys? Will ferment. It's not good honey. So if you use uh, this flow uh, type of a, of, of a hive, then you need to wait until all your frames are what? sealed all the way to the bottom. That will be your sign that you are ready for the harvest. Then you can crank your lever, put your jar, okay? So if you're going with that hive, make sure you do that at the end of the honey harvest season when all the honey is ripe. Because if you do it in the mid-season, when half of the frame is sealed and the other half is not, your honey will be uh, very thin uh, and it will ferment and it won't be good. It won't keep, won't store. Unless you have a way of dehydrating the honey in your dehydrator to bring it to the normal consistency. <laughs> so that, that's the disadvantage. Now, there's another disadvantage of a honey, of that type of a hive. If you are tempted of buying that expensive hive with the idea that I don't have to go in a hive, I don't have to mess with bees, that idea is not a very good idea because the bees actually need some of your intervention. 
You know, if you think that the hive will do all the jobs for you, um, it's flawed thinking. The, the hive will not do everything. It will drain, this type of hive will successfully drain things from the frame. That's the only thing it can do. It will eliminate you messing with the frames and extracting it in the centrifuge, but you still need to remember, if you're buying that type of a hive and you are new to bees, study about bees. Check on your bees. Don't rely on the, on the equipment to do the job for you, because it will not. <laughs> need to learn about the biology of the, of the bees, you need to learn about honey production, you need to learn about disease that may affect. And right now, we'll switch to the subject that we designate this 45 minutes to, which is the disease and how to handle disease um, in your colonies. So, some of you are beekeepers and some of you are new to beekeeping. Either way, if you heard about any disease, tell me what disease you know about beekeeping or about bees, anything you heard about bees. You've heard something today about some, uh, some pests. Varroa mite, very good. Varroa mite. Varroa mite um, can kill your bees in um, two years. If you bought fresh bees, disease-free, from a reputable company like, like uh, Daydant or, or Manlake or Kelly or any other company, or maybe a farmer next door had pretty healthy bees, and you got that package, you hide them in your newly bought hive, you use the best of practices, guess what? The first year you are rearing first batch of brood, your colony will start multiplying not just the bees, but what else? Varroa. Because the cleanest of a, of a colony you buy, the cleanest of a package, will still have maybe 10 varroa mites hiding somewhere there. It's sort of like your appendix, Anybody read that article recently within the last two weeks or three weeks that there was a discovery, it was published just about three weeks, a study, how for centuries we didn't know why we have the appendix. There was no function for appendix so far that was known. Just recently they said that appendix actually is a hiding cave for the flora, for the bacteria, beneficial bacteria to hide in your body just in case of cataclysmic event in your body where all the flora is wiped out by some antibiotic or something. There's always that corner of appendix where some bacteria can hide and stay safely and wait until the disaster is over and come out and repopulate and, and create good flora again in your, in your intestines. That's what they discovered, or at least they say they, they think that's why appendix is there. So just the same way there's varroa mite that's hiding in the bees no matter how well you treat your bees. So most reputable company, the cleanest bees within first year. As the bees start multiplying, that five or ten varroa mite queens that are there will start multiplying. And if you don't treat your hive from the first year you bought it, by the second year you will come to your hive and you see some bees that are walking in front of your hive on the ground. Tell me why they are walking, guys they have no wings because they were developing in the same cell with the varroa mite and the varroa mite was sucking on their lymph and they didn't develop all the legs all their fingers all their wings are not there so they can walk and limp in front of a hive can't do anything so that's the problem a big problem in fact if you see walking bees on the front of your hive or in the on the ground it's a sign of very severe 
varroa infestation. It's too late, basically. <laughs> you have to scrap all that brood. If you see brood, normally beekeepers revere brood. Basically, we see brood that's hatched, that capped. We say, this is great. You know, that's the future generation of bees. I want to preserve this frame. I don't want to harm this frame. When you see the bees that are walking in front of your hive because they cannot fly, that's, that's a signal. Destroy the brood. Why? It's full of varroa. If you allow it to hatch out, all the varroa will hatch out. You just double population of varroa in your colony. So you have to take some radical measure. You've heard about, you know, about uh, surgery that is called amputation, right? It's necessary. So it's an amputation you have to perform on your colony. You throw out that, that frame. You do not allow it to hatch. That's how radical you have to be. A question. Okay, a frame is a piece of comb. It's just a piece that comes out of it. Okay, right. Let me show you some more slides because we. Uh, um, let, let, keep going, keep going. I'll show you. Uh, Right, right, keep going, keep going. There will be some pictures of, of frames in a moment here. Keep going, keep going. Here, here's how your equipment look like, all right? Um, these boxes, you see, I, I keep on, on full deeps. You see, each box is one deep, right? It has ten, fra 10 frames inside. A frame is a wooden frame that has comb that bees built inside. Now, inside of this frame, there's some kind of foundation. It could be the wax foundation or it could be plastic foundation. And normally the bees do not like plastic foundations because of static electricity or a static charge. You know, you know their hairs just don't like it. So they, they build them very poorly. Even though they are plastic foundations coated in wax, the bees poorly develop those, those frames. They prefer pure wax foundation. And they will build them beautifully and straight with beautiful comb. Now, if you use plastic, they will build them well only if there's abundance of nectar. Basically, there's plenty of flowers blossoming. Or maybe you are feeding your beehive sugar water 50-50. A part of water, a part of sugar mixed together, fed to the bees, will produce the same effect as millions of flowers. Basically they will start using that sugar to build comb, build wax really fast. So if you use plastic foundations, make sure you either introduce the plastic foundation during honey flow. Honey flow is a word for season when there's plenty of flowers and nectar flowing and they collect maybe 10, 20 pounds daily. So they use that nectar to build comb right away. At that time, they don't really care whether it's plastic or not. Even the plastic frames will be built really well when there's plenty of nectar coming in. So you either can feed them sugar water and they will build the plastic foundations or wait to introduce plastic foundations until strong honey flow. So one or the other. Now if you use regular wax foundation, they will build it well regardless of the season. All right? A question? Yeah, well, you do it once they used to it or Repeat that, please. When you, you use a plastic foundation, so when it's a good time, the bees are used to it for... Uh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Um, I hear. The question is, when you put plastic foundations in your hive, is it because the bees get used to plastic that they are okay with it? Not really. It's because they cover it with thick, thick walls of wax that they don't sense the plastic anymore. Because when they build it up, the foundation is very thin. It's like one sixteenth of an inch thin. So eventually, they will build it up to be about inch and a half, two inches thick. So there will be these cells. So each of these boxes has 10 frames. This hive has two boxes. This hive, for example, has four boxes. By the way, this is my Texas farm here in um, Nacogdoches, Texas, East Texas. And uh, I still kept the farm. We moved to Canada, we moved to California, but we kept our Texas farm. East Texas is really good for bees. It's plenty of rain, sort of like Florida and Alabama and Louisiana. We have plenty of rain. We have plenty of wild blossoms. We have clover. We have crimson clover. We have Dutch clover. We have um, Chinese tallow tree, which is another good honey producer in our area. And uh, of course, we have wild persimmons blossoms and blackberries. So there's plenty of honey flow there. The bees do really well. By May, you can harvest honey in, in East Texas. Uh, sometimes June depends on, on, on the year. But May or June, you could have a good honey crop. So with, with this kind of uh, boxes, you see they all are full deeps. They, I'm using normally regular wax foundation. Recently, I started using plastic frames because when your number of colonies grows beyond 100, when you're under 100 colonies, you actually have enough time to build each individual frame, put each individual sheet of, of foundation in each frame, you can actually nail your own frames and your own boxes. But when you reach about 100 colonies, you run out of time. So instead of building your equipment and building your frames and putting your foundation in your frames, you buy ready-built equipment because you don't have time. So now I'm basically buying plastic frames that are uniframe, uni basically. Um, and it's coated with wax. And I introduce that frame when there's lots of honey flowing. They build it up, and then they don't really care that it's plastic because you know it's already coated with thick layer of wax, and it's it's okay for them. So, when you discard a frame, what do you do with it? You basically can throw it in a pot and melt it for wax. You you can have a big cauldron outside, put some wood underneath. In East Texas, we have plenty of wood, and I actually have a pot over there that I boil my old frames and um, the wax will flow to the very top and when the water cools down there will be a, a slab of wax on the very top. It's golden yellow, you take it and turn it into a beekeeping store for credit, for the future, either money credit from them because wax is very, very precious commodity. It's used in cosmetics industry, it's used in uh, in um, military, it's used in, in like industries producing different things. It's used in even in industry, in what? In candle making, there we go, candle, you can make your own candles too. So when you have varroa infestation that bad that you have walking bees, it's time to severely, you know, truncate the frames. You look at the frames that have brood, you melt them together with the brood and everything. Don't don't think that you're losing. You're actually destroying Varroa. Number two thing, if you want to do it naturally, I can tell you a few 
chemical ways too, like conventional, you know, traditional conventional beekeeping or industrial beekeeping. There's a few methods too, not so good, I would not recommend, but people do that. I'll tell you first the natural ways. Number two natural way, I already told you, it's your beekeeping practice. You remember I told you about introducing a um, drone frame in your colony? Anybody remembers for what purpose we introduced the drone frame? To use it to attract mite queens because they like to lay their eggs in drone cells. So you wait until the drone cells are kept, then all or majority of your mites are trapped there, especially the queens are trapped there feeding on larvae. Then you do the same with this, either give it to the chicken or you can, you know, you can first put it in the freezer for about four or five days. So it, it kills all the, all the larvae and all the varroa larvae too. When it's killed, put it out for the chicken to pack it out or the birds pack it out. And then return this frame back in a hive to serve as a trap for, for varroa for the future. This is number two method. Um, I saw one hand there and one here, so we'll go there. Um, so how would you get uh, a frame full of drones? Good question. A queen doesn't just lay on the frame. Very good. This young man is asking a question. How do you get the queen tricked into laying drone eggs into that frame? There's a couple of methods. One of them, you introduce it in the middle of the honey flow. The honey flow is a season in beekeeping when there's plenty of flowers, plenty of nectar coming in. And at that time, the queen is encouraged by that honey flow, encouraged to lay lots of eggs, including lots of drone eggs. Why does she need drone eggs? For the future colonies that the queen is planning to develop in the future. You need drones for that. So you introduce the, this frame right in the center of your colony because there's 10 frames. Remember, there's 10 frames in a colony or eight, depends on the system you're going with. And if you look at them from top, it looks like, like this, 10 frames. In the, right in the middle is the epicenter where the queen will lay eggs. The frames on the sides will be honey and pollen. The frames, the middle, three or four, five, six frames in the middle would be the frames with brood. So this frame, the drone frame, that is specifically designed for the drone cells, introduce it right in the middle of your colony. So epicenter of your colony where the queen runs around and lays eggs it will encourage her to lay there. If there's no honey flow or the consistency of nectar is very thick, she will not lay drone eggs. She will refuse. She, she says, I don't need drones. So she will ignore it. But you can trick her into it. And you know the trick? You start feeding this colony very thin sugar water. Give this colony, oh, like 40% like water. No, 40% sugar and 60% water. Mix it and feed it to this colony. And as soon as they start bringing this thin nectar or thin sugar in, the queen will be prompted to lay drone eggs because this thin nectar tells the queen, there's plenty of uh, good nectar. It probably is raining outdoors. That's very good forecast that we have a beautiful summer with plenty of flowers. We might need to produce a few new swarms with I need a few hundreds of drones for that, so let me lay a few drone eggs. So that's what happens. You, you introduce thin nectar or thin sugar water, which triggers drone production.
Yes. Okay, but isn't it the workers that actually build the cells and determine the size of the cells? That is true. However, you can buy a drone size foundation. It's normally green colored foundation. If you go to beekeeper store, you can buy foundation imprinted with worker cells or larger cells, drone cells. And you introduce that foundation and just because the foundation is patterned for larger cells, they will be forced to draw drone cells uh, size. We're not working at that far though. Uh, it will not, but they automatically will build some drone cells anyway. Like if you look at, if you have a top bar hive, the question is how do you do this system in a top bar hive? Because you don't put foundations in. Any hive under the condition of fresh nectar coming in, whether it's top bar hive or standard hive, root hive, any type of a hive, if there's flowing nectar and, and its consistency is very thin, the bees will start building more drone cells and the queen will start laying more drone eggs. It's because of the forecast of good weather and plenty. Seven years of plenty, seven years of drought, you know? <laughs> so that's, that's how it works for them. Yes. So, your varroa is probably your worst enemy at this point as far as, as, as pests. If you live, so we'll leave it at that. Those are the, you remember two other natural ways? Thyme oil or thyme plant, uh, wormwood. Um, those are natural ways. There's a couple more natural ways. There's thyme oil. It's a chemical, um, a chemically, um, I guess, artificially derived, um, sort of like mantol, thyme oil, artificial component that you can use for your bees for the same purpose. Read the instructions very carefully because some of those things are actually insecticides. They are acaricides, is that a word? Acaricides. Acaris or acaris is Latin for, for, for mite. Uh, so those are, if you overdose a little bit, that insecticide will not only kill the varroa, but it will also kill what? The bees. So be very careful if you're using those harsher, the, the thyme and the wormwood won't kill your bees. But if you are using the concentrated or artificially derived chemical similar to what's in the herbs, that could be overdosed. It will not only kill varroa, it will kill the bees. Guess who, guess who dies first in a colony? The queen. If you introduce this harsh chemical, like, like for example, you do the, and I, I learned it the hard way. I used um, thymol. I put thymol in my hives and I noticed I lost like half of my queens within the first week. And I thought, oh no, why are they put, making new queens? And I, I connected it. I said, oh man, I'm, only the ones that I put thymol have lost the queens. The ones I'm not using thymol have all their queens doing well. So I said, ah, I will stop using thymol. So I'm not using thymol anymore. How did you use the, the thyme oil or the wormwood oil? Um, you buy it at a and it has um, the best thing to do actually is read the instructions, buy, buy the, the product at the beekeeper store, read the instruction, and go with the, with the dose that's a little lesser than recommended because mo like 50% of my queens didn't like it at all. Okay, but what about the natural, the, the actual time? It will not, you, you can use that. But you can buy that at the beekeeping stores? No, you cannot. Okay. You can harvest your own wormwood or artemisia, that's another word for it or you can collect your own time and just 
Put it on top of your frames. Just fresh time. Put it on top of your frames and remove it in two weeks. And it has the same effect without any damaging effect. Now, remember, a good practice to, to combat or prevent varroa is if you have few hives. Remember, if you are a hobbyist, have two or five hives or ten, you still can do it. You have time for it. Take a wax sheet, like wax paper, you know, for baking, and put it in the bottom of your hive on the bottom board and put some kind of Vaseline on it. So whenever varroa, varroa mites actually are real things that run around. Let me show you another picture of varroa. Do you want the screen bottom box? Yes, you could do that. That's even better. Yes. Uh, I'll, I'll come to, to that in a moment. All right. Somebody point out on this picture, there's worker bees, there's a queen, and there's a bee that's severely damaged by varroa. Can, can anybody identify that bee on this shot? Somebody mentioned top, yes. Is it to the left or the right of the queen? To the right of the queen. You see this bee right here? You see its crippled wings? It, we only see the, the, the abdomen and the... You see the, yeah, that, that bee right there? It's actually damaged by varroa mite. Now, I don't see the mite here. I think it's on another shot. Let yeah, me show you. Have I have a, a mite there, too? Yeah, open the... Okay. Open I remember I, I, I actually prepared that to, to show you that thing. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, right there. The third from the top. Aha. Uh -huh. Okay, I'll freeze it. I'll watch it and freeze it when, when I see. Now, you see the hatching bees there? Um, you probably will see a wingless bee somewhere here pretty soon. Let's watch for that. I'll tell you when I see that. Um, it's coming, it's coming. And I'll prepare to freeze it. This is a newly born bee. You see how fuzzy it is, just hatched? More bees hatching. And... Uh, there's honey, you see on the top of the frame, there's some honey shining there. There's a queen. And I saw a raw rider somewhere here. Ah, here. You see this bee has a red dot on it? That's the size of the varroa. It's a very tiny, it's like poppy size, little pest, sort of like a, you know, like, what do you call those things uh, on your dogs and cats? Like ticks only slightly smaller. It's a tick thing, right? It actually is very tiny to see, but it does a lot of damage. So if the bees normally, there's a variety of bees called Russian bees. It's a, a strain of bees uh, that are very active and very, very good housekeepers. They basically clean each, they groom each other, they, they take every piece of dirt right away from a house, and, and they were selected for that, for that quality. Those bees actually are so good at, at grooming each other that they actually pick off these varroas of each other and drop them down. Now, you mentioned a screen bottom hive. Some people do double bottom, a screen bottom, and then underneath there's wooden bottom. So when the varroa mite is being, bees are very active, bump into each other, scrape each other, 
and some of the bees actually groom each other. They pick off these varroa mites and drop on the bottom. And if you have a screened bottom, varroa falls through the screen. The bees can only walk on a screen. They cannot fit through the mesh. The, the mite drops to the very bottom. On the bottom, you spread a sheet with some kind of grease. You could use Crisco grease, or you could go Vaseline, do Vaseline or some other goo. Or, um, yeah, or maybe you could sticky paper or something. So the varroa drops down, gets stuck, and you're not using any chemicals at all. So it's just uh, one of the practices you could do another way. I see a question. Can you use a video? You can, please. Go ahead. Sorry about ignoring your hands. Yes. Is the Russian variety more resistant to the varroa? Yes. The Russian variety or Russian strain of bees that was um, uh, brought into America about 15 years ago. You can buy them from Texas. There. Kelly does that too. Kelly does that too. So you can buy that variety. They are resistant to varroa. It's not that they are genetically not allowing it to reproduce. It's because of their mechanism of, of grooming each other and, and picking them off. Sort of like you pick the tick off your dog, you know? The same thing that happens to, to the bees. So, so that's how it works. I saw another hand, yes. Would you, do you use the screen? I don't. I used to, when I have just 10 hives, I used to do screen bottoms. I used to do, you know, the grease on the bottom. I, I actually have had time to count the varroa mites. That's how much time I had on my head. <laughs> now I have two kids in college, and uh, of course, you know, I work, uh, and of course, uh, you know, I don't have time to to do each hive's uh, double bottom grease, and I don't count mites anymore. So when you have above hundred hives, you stop doing that because you don't have time. So what I do, I do something different instead. Um, and I tell you two more natural ways, and, and then I'll tell you commercial ways. So um, let me tell you two more natural ways of dealing with, with varroa. There's thermal way of, of achieving the same effect. You heat your colonies up. You heat them up uh, in a chamber. You shake them off each hive in a box, in a cassette, like a mesh box. Shut them. Take them in your oven. Well, it's actually a, a thermal chamber that's thermostatically controlled, but I'm just, just, you can put them in the oven, okay? Put them at like 100 degrees. Normally, the, the bees maintain a temperature of 96, 97 degrees in the colony. And that's very interesting. It could be 110 outside, and it would be 97 inside. How do they achieve that? They use something called swamp cooling, as we use. In Florida, it's ineffective, right? Swamp cooling doesn't work in Florida, but it works in, in New Mexico. It works in Arizona, in West Texas. Any dry climate, it works well. So the bees actually bring droplets of water, and it's a special crew of bees. Normally, when the bee wore out all its resources and all its glands stopped producing whatever they were producing when the bee was younger, that bee's job becomes very simple. They are carrying water into the hive. That's the only thing they can do at the age of 35 days. You know, when the bee reaches the age of 30 or 35, well, when I define that so precisely, I'm doing the bees a disservice. They're actually flexible. If there's a, a gap in generation somewhere there, they will take over and do jobs for other bees. 
However, if the bee is 35 days old and there's need to produce royal jelly, the 35-day-old bee cannot produce royal jelly. The time to produce, produce royal jelly, the glands were active when the bee's, the bee's age was about 10 days old. Now it's past that time. It's sort of like, um, like, you know, certain glands don't perform as well when we get older. So same thing with bees, <laughs> all right? So, however, they still overlap their tasks and jobs. They're flexible enough to do jobs for each other with exception of some specific jobs. So, you increase, even though they can keep the temperature controlled in their hive, it could be minus 40 outdoors, but inside of the cluster of the bees. You know that when it's cold outside, the colony collapses into a cluster, sort of like a basketball-sized shape ball. And the colder it gets, guess what? The tighter the cluster becomes. If it's minus 45, it's this tight. It's the size of a volleyball. <laughs> a little warmer, basketball. 50 degrees and above, the cluster falls apart and they run everywhere in the hive. All right? So it could be minus 40 inside of the core of this ball. The temperature is 96, 97. Inside, inside. Can you imagine that? Now, these guys on the periphery, they form a, like a, a crust. They stand sh shoulder to shoulder, right? And they sort of do these exercise motions to keep warm. And uh, they get some honey, of course, to be able to move their muscles and vibrate, produce heat. And then they get cold. They dive in, go to the epicenter, warm up. Those guys who took turn warming up go out on the periphery and do that thing. So the crust is always changing, you know, the guards are changing. And inside it's summer, on the outside it's minus 40. Amazing. Now what you are doing actually, the bees maintain that temperature constant. The mite likes that temperature, it develops well. But if you take that whole cluster, or that whole, you know, family, or, or that structure, with the mites and everything, shake them in a cassette, put them in a thermal chamber, heat them up to 100 degrees, and uh, you can, there's a few methods you can read up on thermal treatment of Varroa to get specific temperature for specific regions. And you will find out that while you're heating them up, the bees survive the heat while the mites drop off. So that's another natural method of, of treating um, the bees. Then you return this whole colony. Now, if your infestation was really bad, besides just treating them thermally, you need to discard all your capped what? Capped brood, absolutely right. Why capped brood has to be discarded? Because besides baby bees, what else is in those cells? Varroa that will be born pretty soon. So you want to discard those, be ruthless in doing that. Then you saved your hive. So if you have severe cancer, you have to carefully cut out the whole cancer, yes. How long do you keep them to 100 degrees? I don't remember the, t the temperature, but you can read up on this method either online or in the books. I don't, I don't remember the, temp, the, the exact duration. Um, I haven't done it for about 20 years. I'm doing something different for Varroa, but it's another natural way of doing it. Freezing them doesn't work. Freezing them doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> right. Oh. Is, it, is it like a few minutes or an hour or two? No, no it's like 10 minutes, okay. about 10 minutes exposure, yeah. But, but I haven't read or haven't done it recently. Maybe there's better recommendation, maybe seven minutes at 110 degrees or five minutes at 110. I don't know. But you, you can read up on that. 
but thermal, um, um, thermal method is another uh, natural method. Another natural method is, um, is to actually keep making new colonies. Basically, if you, if you make new colonies, you have 100 old colonies, and you say, I want to get rid of the, all the varroa. So you can organize a new colony on newcomb with just the bees rather than the brood. Don't take the brood into your new colony, all right? So if you just took the bees and started a new colony and took some eggs so they could start a new queen there or introduced a new queen you bought or reared somewhere in the backyard. So in a new colony, you have fairly healthy bees because they have very few varroa. Most of the varroa are always in the brood. So your old colony has most of the varroa left. So you treat varroa just in half of your colonies, right? And the other half are fairly healthy because you just transplanted them, all right? Sometimes the bees do the same thing. If the bees feel that their nest with the comb is infested with varroa, they abandoned it. It's called abscond. They abscond the, the, the whole thing. They leave and they go to another part of the hive where the, the comb is fresh. And they say, oh, well, we lose all these babies here, but we'll be healthier in this part of the hive. So they left the first box. They went into the second box and started the colony there. They left all the babies there and they started from scratch in the top. Basically, like the Bible says, when your house is growing a mold, you know, you need to destroy the house. <laughs> That's what they do. Sometimes, if it's a severe bacterial infestation on top of the, of the pests like varroa, the bees will totally leave the hive and go somewhere else and start from scratch. So you can do that for them too. You can say, hey, this comb looks like it's diseased and sickly comb. How do you determine that? Here's a good rule of thumb. You take your comb out of the hive and you look at its color. If it's light yellow or brown, it's good comb. Now remember, what makes comb darker or browner? To start with, it's yellow. Now every year, as the bees are born, you remember the larva spins a cocoon and then hatches out. What happens to the cocoon? Anybody thought of it? It actually gets stuck to the inner walls of the cell which gives the cell browner color. So there's second generation, another layer of cocoon stuck to the inside of the cell. So with each generation, the cell actually becomes a little thicker and the opening is becoming a little smaller. So eventually there's so many layers of cocoon stuck to this, each cell of the comb that when you look at the comb, you cannot even see the light through it. It's, it, it's lost its, its translucency. It, you, you, transparency. transparency. Good. Translucent is when you can see through, right? Good. It's, it's, you cannot see through it. That's the time to discard the comb. Because so many layers of cocoon creates very thin cavities for bacteria to hide without the bee's ability to polish inside of those little you know, cracks. The bee can only polish what it can physically access, right? So if you keep younger comb or newer comb, you defend your colony from bacterial or 
fungal or viral infections. So that, that's a good practice. Yes? Don't they clean out that cocoon? No. They do not clean out the cocoons. The cocoon becomes a part of the wax and they don't do it for a purpose. Pure, fresh wax is so fragile that the, when they fill it with honey, if they overfilled it with honey on a warm day in Arizona or Texas, guess what happens to your comb? It melts. And the whole you know, ball of wax is on the bottom of your hive. <laughs> so the bees use the cocoons as a rebar is used in cement structures, if you learn about construction or engineering. So the cocoon reinforces the wax. So the wax that is a little, it's a little browner is actually wax that's reinforced with layers of cocoons of the bees that hatched out. That means that that comb is really good for a certain purpose. Now, lighter comb is good for babies. Why? You do not have as many bacteria or virus there. No room for bacteria and viruses to hide, right? So if you re-brood in the summertime, use lighter brood, uh, I mean, lighter comb for the brood. Your brood will be healthier. However, use your darker comb, the comb that is dark, that basically designates a season or two of breeding bees in it. Use that darker comb for honey storage. Because if you store honey in your new comb that's just built, it's so light and fragile, when you put it in centrifuge and try to spin it to get the honey out, guess what happens to your frame? It breaks. Now, if you use darker comb that isn't re reinforced with, with the cocoons and spin it in a, in a centrifuge, it does not break. It's strong enough, it can support uh, you know, lots of pounds of honey without breaking or dropping or melting. Yes? So when you say that you mean use it, you mean by placement in the hive that determines what is used? Absolutely. You remember that, you remember we talked about first story and second story being used for brood rearing. Then you put a queen excluder, it's a, it's a mash that allows the worker bees go through, but the, end, the holes are too small for the queen to go through. Therefore, the queen is only working the first two boxes. So your third and fourth box, or fifth box, depending on what size of boxes you use on the top, would be just honey. So use your darker comb for the honey, your lighter comb for the brood. Your brood will be healthier, your colony will be healthier. I saw two hands, one there and one here. Time to for a break? Lunch. Okay, really quick, uh, just give me two more minutes. Really quick on other disease. There's a horrible pest in East States, like, like from East Texas and all the way to the East Coast, called hive beetle. Yeah. Hive beetle is the nastiest thing you can get. Hive beetle. Called hive beetle. It belongs to the same family as ladybugs, only it's a little smaller than a ladybug, just 70% just the size of a ladybug. And it's not dotted red and black. It's totally black, dark brown, black beetle. Looks like a ladybug. It's an evil thing, what it does. It bores through your frames, it eats your larva, it eats honey, it eats pollen. One day, if you didn't control your beetle, you come to your hive and you see goo flowing out of the entrance of your hive. You say, what's going on? It's all the things that that hive bored through the frames, the honey, the larva, everything will be flowing out of your hive. 
it destroys your, your hives basically. Bad thing. There's a few methods of dealing with that. Natural methods use your unscented laundry dryer sheets. Um, it has little, uh, little lint catching thing or whatever you call it. You know, it has fibers that the legs of that little beetle gets caught in and it gets trapped into that sheet. Use little scented with fermented, uh, um, fermented substance like vinegar or some, some apple cider. Uh, special traps you buy, you put it in your hive. They are attracted to fermenting stuff and eventually that trap is one way in, no way out. You trap that stuff. There's An unscented dryer sheet with apple cider vinegar. No, nothing. No. Sheets, just nothing. Uh, the beetle is actually chased by the bees. The bees would chase the beetles and drag them out because the beetles are good size. You can chase them around. But the beetles ha like tight spaces where they crawl in and the bees cannot crawl in there because the beetle is smaller than the bee. So it hides in tight spaces. So put those sheets in tight spaces in the hive between the lid and the frames, for example, or s somewhere you know, close to and a tight corner, you know, underneath, uh, like bottom board, if you have double bottom somewhere, somewhere where the frames are touching the wall, and it'll catch them. That's one way, natural way. Another is trap. There's chemical methods too. They're available online and in the books. Two other bad disease, and then the question, and then we go for a break. There's really, really bad bacterial infection called foul brood. It happens under conditions like moisture and cold and old frames. Combine these factors in your, uh, in your hive. Moisture, cold, old comb, and you will get foul brood. Foul brood is always present in the colony. Plus one more condition, weak colony. You said old combs? Old comb, yeah, like black, dark comb that has many layers of, of um, cocoons that have little crevasses for bacteria to hide. That's a good recipe, foul brood. Foul brood will destroy your hive. Basically, your larva start, starts rotting before it hatches out. Um, there's two types of foul brood, European and American. Both have the same treatment, which is antibiotic. There's no other way. Um, actually, many beekeepers just burn their hives, the whole equipment, because it's infested with, with, uh, yeah, with uh, foul brood bacteria. It's called, I forgot the name of the bacteria. Um, so, horrible thing. A good recipe to get that disease is moisture, cold, old frames, old comb. Good recipe. So keep your hives. Oh, another component, weak hive. Weak hive. Why weak hive is very susceptible? It doesn't have enough of medics to do the job. Because normally a strong hive takes care of foul brood. Why and how? They have enough medics or bees whose job is to get propolis and polish everything in the hive, all, all the cells, all the frames, all the, all the walls with propolis. Propolis will kill this bacteria. But when the colony is small, they only have 10 medics available, they cannot do the job, and the bacteria takes over. Strong colony prevents this disease. Clean frames, new comb for the brood, um, dry, warm climate, good idea. There's always bacterial infection that causing American fowl brood present. Just give it the right condition, it'll blossom. Um, one more thing, and we are done. Uh, Nozema infection. Northern climates, humid climates. Uh, it's also a, a, um, a simple organism that causes disease. It causes diarrhea in bees. 
Uh, cool, humid climates cause that. Um, read up more in the books on this disease online, uh, or any local bee club will give you more details on this. Yes, question. No Nozema, N-O-S-E-M-A. A question over there, somewhere there. Gone. Done with the question? Okay. All right, guys. <clears throat> Let's take a break. Uh, I guess it's lunch break, right? And, and in the afternoon, we'll talk about a few other things. But for now, believe me, it's hard to say everything in, in the same... <laughs> in, <laughs> yeah. That's why you need to read books. <coughs> this media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.